0: Our gospel lesson this morning is from the gospel according to Matthew, the 17th chapter, verses 1 through 9. Here now the word of God.
1: Six days later,
0: Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. When the disciples heard this, they fell on the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up, and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today, as you've heard already, is one of those special days on the church's calendar. One of those holy days that we set aside to remember a a special event in Jesus' earthly ministry. The Transfiguration. This Transfiguration Sunday is always the last Sunday before Lent. Which, as you've already heard, begins Wednesday of this week. And I think it's fitting for us to, to hear these verses right as we're about to begin the season of Lent. Because they let us know that we have some stuff to do. Even when we have holy moments with God, we can't stay in those moments forever. Let's rewind just a little bit and make sure we're all on the same page as to what's going on here. So Jesus has taken three of his disciples, and he's taking them to the top of a mountain... And there, to use the word we usually use in English, he's transfigured before them. His appearance changes. What Matthew is telling us here, I think, is is he's trying to describe in words what is indescribable. Peter and the other disciples saw something. They saw Jesus changed. And they struggled to find words to describe what they were seeing. Language failed them. And so we have, they they describe it as best they can using words like light. Somehow or another, Jesus became light among them. That makes, again, trying to describe something that's indescribable, trying to describe something that you can't see. And I think the reason that the disciples were having so much trouble describing what they were seeing is they were seeing a glimpse of Jesus... In his heavenly reality. They had known Jesus just as we know one another. They had known Jesus as a human being who was like them in every way but sin. And just as you can sit and have conversation and talk to another person. That's what their relationship up to this point with Jesus had been like. But now they see him in a way they've never seen him before. They see Jesus As he exists in heaven. And earthbound eyes couldn't understand, and an earthbound mind couldn't understand what they were seeing. But that's what they were seeing. And just as they begin to register what they're seeing, or struggle to understand what they're seeing, they see with Jesus Moses and Elijah. Matthew gives us those two prophets very intentionally. There's something we need to understand knowing that Jesus is standing there with Moses and Elijah. But let's talk first about Moses. Moses. Moses was prophet number one. In the canon of the Old Testament, none, no prophet was greater than Moses. Moses was the bringer of God's law. Now, elsewhere in the New Testament, we hear Jesus talk about the law and that phrase. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But I don't want you to think of that in a minute. When we talk about Moses as bringer of the law from God, we're talking about Moses as bringing the word of God to God's people. And the law that Moses literally brought as he came down from another mountain, Mount Sinai, as we heard about in the Old Testament lesson, the Ten Commandments, these ten commandments. Laws of God etched onto stone tablets that Moses literally carried down from Mount Sinai. This law that he brought down became the basis for the rest of the law that we find in the Torah. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, traditionally attributed to Moses. Whether he actually sat and wrote down those words or not, they reflect the teaching of Moses. They are our written record of the law that Moses brought to his people and passed on. Laws that were built on the Ten Commandments and not something to be restrictive, not something to be onerous, but rather a way, a covenant for God and God's people to live in relationship with one another. So we have Moses, the prophet of prophets, the bringer of the law, the representative of Torah, God's word to God's people. And standing there also is Elijah, another prophet. And for the people at Jesus' time, Moses would have been prophet number one, but second to him would have been Elijah, another prophet. A prophet in his own right who brought God's word to God's people, who spoke truth to power, who told truths that were inconvenient and people didn't want to hear. We have stories, incidentally, of of Elijah going on the top of another mountain, And doing spiritual battle with prophets of a false god. Elijah, it was prophesied, would be the one who returned and prepared the way for Jesus to be born into the world. And I know all of you were listening with great attention to my sermons during Advent. And if you refer back to your notes, because I know you all have copious notes from every sermon I preach that you can go back and refer to so you can see common themes. Y'all don't do that? Anyway. <laughs> but you'll remember Elijah was prophesied to return to prepare the way for Jesus, and John the Baptist filled that role and lived into that role. And so, and, but Elijah then stands in for all the other prophets, the record of whose ministry we find in the Old Testament. Now, add to that, remember I told you about the law? So, in Jesus' ministry, when we see Jesus' teaching as recorded in the New Testament, when Jesus talks about the law, he's not meaning necessarily the teachings of Moses, the teachings of the first five books of the Old Testament. When Jesus is talking about the law in the New Testament, he's usually using it in response to the Pharisees, religious leaders that he didn't always get along with. And these, when Jesus talks about the law, it's often in a way that is negative. And what he's doing when he does that, he's not saying these parts, these teachings that we find in the Old Testament are wrong. What he's saying, he's talking about that which has been added to God's word. In the Torah, he's talking about the Pharisees who, through the years, have added more and more rules and so that it's no longer about a covenant relationship with God. Instead, it's about legalism and it's about rules of right and wrong that are difficult to keep and used to judge people and talk about who's in and who's out. So Jesus talks about the law in a negative way, but then he talks about the law and the prophets. Now, when Jesus says the law and the prophets elsewhere in the New Testament, that's coded word for the Old Testament. That's Jesus talking about the law, which would be the first five books, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the prophets being most of the rest of the Old Testament. I'm not going to try to name all them because there's a bunch of them and I'll get them out of order. But they're there. So when Jesus says the law and the prophets, he doesn't say, I came to replace the law and the prophets. He says, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. The, the prophets' ministry and all the moral teaching embodied in the law was leading up to Jesus coming into the world. So we have here Moses representing The law. We have Elijah representing the prophets, and we have Jesus, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, representing the gospel itself. I don't know if the disciples would have had all this in mind in the moment, but it seems to me that as they told the story, and it's the way Matthew wrote it down, that that's what we should take away from it. So they see all this going on, represented there before them in heavenly reality. In a way that they couldn't comprehend. And then, from heaven, the voice of God says, this is my son, the beloved. Echoing the words that were heard when Jesus was baptized. When Jesus was baptized by his cousin John the Baptist, those same words were spoken from heaven by God. This is my son, the beloved. And they hear those words again. The voice of God claiming who Jesus is in that moment in the middle of transfiguration. And then God says something he didn't say before. He says, listen to him. This is my son. Listen to him. I think it's interesting in that moment, what does Peter do as soon as he starts trying to figure out what's going on? He says, Lord, I've got it all figured out. We're going to build three huts, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and we'll just stay up here forever. He just starts talking, and it's almost as God is saying, hush, Peter, and listen. Listen to him. My grandmother was fond of reminding me that I had one mouth and two ears. Which, man, I should listen twice as much as I talked. A lesson I've yet to learn. But but God says here, in reference to Jesus, listen to him. In response to Peter's wanting to stay up on the mountaintop there, Jesus says, no, we can't. We've got work to do. We could stay up here and have this incredible spiritual experience which it no doubt is, imagine being with Jesus on earth and experiencing him as he is in his resurrected heavenly glory. And then having to go down from the mountain, but Jesus says that's exactly what we have to do. Moses and Elijah are gone. Jesus is back to normal. They walk down off the mountain. Jesus says we've got stuff to do down there.
1: And I say it's fitting to read
0: these verses right before Lent because the Transfiguration holds for us this tension between Jesus and glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And this Lenten journey which brings us toward the cross atop Mount Calvary where Jesus died. And Jesus brings that to mind in the closing verse of this reading when he tells the disciples not to talk about it. Not to share what had happened until after his resurrection. By speaking of his resurrection, Jesus necessarily calls to mind his death, and so that the joy of transfiguration is juxtaposed over and against the pain of the cross. The path to the glory of the empty tomb, to Jesus living in the way that the disciples saw in the transfiguration could not come to pass without the pain of Jesus' death. We're familiar with, we aren't we, the idea that pain can lead to joy? if we have our eyes on the prize of some goal or something we're trying to achieve and emboldens us to do the hard things to get through, even if the present is awful, knowing the goal can make working toward it easier and bring a degree of peace and comfort in the process. Have you ever been on a journey that seemed long and was long and was difficult, but the destination made the trip worthwhile? Jesus here in mentioning his resurrection is is reminding the disciples and through the pages of scripture reminding us that what we are approaching what God is bringing us toward is wonderful is glorious is embodied in the idea of resurrection is embodied in the idea of a transfigured Jesus but that heavenly reality can't be right now it's a glimpse Of what we may be working toward, but that we're not yet there. And in that process of being drawn toward that, there's something for us to do. We have to come down from the mountain and live in the now with the certainty and reality of what's coming, but live in the now nevertheless. Knowing the future reality, the joy on the other side of pain, can make possible to do, make it possible for us to do hard things here and now. That's a relatively minor example, but maybe one you might be able to relate to in a way that's a little more real. I was thinking about this, and I was reminded of my seminary experience. I went to uh, Emory for seminary in Atlanta, and... I was not, it took me a little while to figure things out that that's where I was supposed to be going. And so it was a little more than three years out of college before I uh, started Emory. And as I started that fall, and I I knew this is what God had for me to do, I knew it was what I needed to do. Uh, I knew, but I don't know if, but I, I needed to figure out how to make it happen in a way that worked. Being three years out of college, I'd already, you know accumulated some responsibilities and obligations. Ellen and I were married by that point. We didn't have children yet, but I needed to figure out how to make life work from a practical standpoint if I was going to go to seminary. And so I did what was very common in those days. It's not as common now, but when I was in seminary, it was very common to serve a student appointment, meaning you would have a church part-time and then go to school while serving a little church part-time. I had two churches Both of you, some of you have heard me talk about them before in Abbeville County. Now, I don't know if y'all are real good at geography, but if you're in seminary in Atlanta and you're serving two churches in South Carolina, I don't know if y'all know, Atlanta is on the other side of Georgia, too. It's about 150 miles, but that was just about as close as they could get me to Atlanta and keep me east of the Savannah River. So I'm serving these two little churches, I'm driving back and forth weekly, Sunday evening or Monday morning, driving to Atlanta, Friday evening, Friday morning, coming home, doing it all over again. We had an apartment in Atlanta. We had a, a parsonage that we were blessed to have in the little town where the bigger church was. Notice I said bigger, not big. But we were blessed in that appointment. We were blessed by our time in Atlanta. Ellen had a job in Atlanta, so her job was not dependent on the academic year, so while I was in, in the summers back in South Carolina trying to uh, cram into three months stuff I should have been working on for nine months for these two little churches, Ellen is still commuting back and forth to Atlanta. And we knew it was going to be hard going in, we knew it was going to be difficult, we knew it wouldn't all be fun. But from the very beginning, we said to ourselves, We can do anything for three years. Three years. We could do anything for three years. In moments of grief, we would just, and and tiredness, and driving 150 miles back and forth one way, we'd say to one another, We can do anything for three years. We were focused on graduation day. Just get the diploma and go home. And finally, that's what happened. And it was over. And I was now on a full time appointment sitting at a desk one day, and I realized I have all these extra hours in the week. And I don't know what to do with it. Am I done something wrong? Am I underemployed? Do I need to go find more work to do? Do I need to, what, what's going on here? And I, I reflected on that experience. And I'm like, you know, that was not a really smart thing we did. At least from human standards. It, it, we, we, we created this three-year lifestyle that was wholly unsustainable. But we did it. Focused on the goal, focused on the end. If you can just get to the end of three years, all will be fine. And we did, and it was. If we stay focused on where we're going, if we stay focused on whatever goal we've set, it can make the difficulty of getting there bearable. Jesus is getting at this idea when he says to the disciples, We can't stay up here, we've got work to do. And make no mistake, I love mountains. I love the mountains. One of my favorite places is Table Rock, at Table Rock State Park. The hike to the top of Table Rock is 2,000 vertical feet. Maybe some of you have made that trek. And it's popular, but it's not easy. If you look in any hiking guidebook, it says, it classifies it as strenuous to very strenuous. And I'm not a super fit hiker. But I've learned that if I just keep putting one foot in front of the other and don't sit down for too long, because if you sit down for too long, chances chance it reduces the likelihood of you standing up. But if you just keep going, if you just keep walking, if you just keep putting one foot in front of the other, when you get to the top, it's worth it. Once you've climbed those 2,000 plus vertical feet, the view is worth it. You can see for just miles in any direction, and it's beautiful. And also, when you get to the top, you've gained elevation enough that the plants have changed. You feel almost like you're in a different world. Sometimes ravens will fly over from Ravencliff Falls, the only place in South Carolina where you see ravens in the wild. And you know if you've seen a raven, but when you say to yourself, What's wrong with that crow? it's a raven. It's a almost magical experience to get to the top of Table Rock for me. But while I'm struggling to get to the top, while I'm thinking about the hot spots my hiking boots are creating, while my heart is pounding, while I'm seemingly thirsty without being able to drink enough water, I know that if I just get up there, it'll be worth it. It will have been worth it. But once you're up there, you know you have to come back down some years ago, I was blessed to be on a, with a group of guys at a hiking trip in southern Colorado in the Rockies. And the little town that we used as our base of operations for the week had a little diner that was hiring. Wanted a, a short order cook. And I'm like, well, I bet I can learn to cook. Maybe if I just get a job cooking eggs for the people here in Colorado, I can send for Ellen and the children, and, and they probably won't come. But I could send for them anyway. But no, I had to come home. We've had those moments we want to cling to, whether whether they're a a moment like I've described, whether it's a spiritual moment. We've had those, those moments that we don't want to let go of that we wish we could just keep and keep forever, but we can't. We have to get back to the real world. The disciples have had these moments on the mountaintop. They don't want it to end, but it has to. They know that what lies ahead for them is dangerous, is scary, is frightening. Jesus certainly knew what awaited him. Yet they came down from the mountaintop anyway. Because to, put, to, to paraphrase what Jesus says, we have work to do. We can't just stay here. We have to go down into the valley and do the hard work that God has given us. Now, we can live in the valley and work in the valley in the light of God's promises, knowing what God is drawing us toward. We can remember and cherish that experience of Jesus. He's telling them with a light-filled, resurrected, eternal, heavenly existence, like what Peter and James and John saw on the mountaintop. But Jesus says, for now, we've got to go down there. We've got work to do. And he says the same thing to us. We've got work to do. We have a God-given mission to be about. We as individuals and we as church. And so let's let Jesus say those same words And he says to the disciples, to us. Let's get at it. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, as you sent your Holy Spirit on those who have prophesied, so send it afresh on us that we too might speak your word of truth and be about the work of your justice. Give us the wisdom and power to move down from the mountaintops of seeing your face and into the world which is in need of your mercy. Make us your instruments. Lord, as we rejoice in being a gathered community here in your presence, we're mindful of those today who stand in need. So, Lord, we pray for those who are in need of healing. We pray for those who are suffering emotionally. We pray for those who mourn. We pray to all of them that you grant your peace. And, Lord, we pray that one day we might dwell with your Son in glory forever. For we pray in his name. Amen.